right. Well, good morning. I encourage you to come back and grab a seat there if you would for me. Thanks so much. Well, I know uh, if you're anything like me, you're looking forward to that, that pasta cook-off that's coming up following the service here today. Certainly going to enjoy that. And I uh, definitely want to echo Ryan's invitation. Even if you didn't bring anything, even if you didn't know about it, but you're here, please stay and uh, join us for that great time of food and fellowship following the service. Speaking of uh, food and fellowship, about a year ago to almost to the day, I had a meeting just, just about a block from here with a guy that some of you will, will definitely know, a gentleman by the name of Jim Leverett. And uh, Jim and I had planned to get together for lunch. We knew each other from, uh, from my days at Taylor and his days at Taylor Seminary where I had some classes with him and he had taught some leadership and some governance seminars. If you know Jim, that was core to his passions, these policy-type guys that are confusing to so many of us, but God bless them, we need policy people in our churches. And I was pleased to meet with him because I'd also learned that he was the regional minister for the ABA, the Alberta conference that we're, that we're a part of here at West Meadows. And so as we were having lunch, Jim was just coming back off a time away, and he was telling me about what he had learned about himself during that time, about uh, his need for balance in his life. We talked about that last Sunday. He talked about his need for balance in his life, but he also passionately told me about a book he had just finished reading, a book that he had immersed himself in while he was on that break, and it was a book by the name of, of With by a gentleman by the name of Sky Jatani. Now, I had never heard of Sky Jatani before. Perhaps you haven't either, but as I, I came to know more about him, found out that he is the managing editor of the Leadership Journal, which is a division of Christianity Today. He's also a renowned a speaker, an author, journalist, and he happens to have a very informative and humorous podcast that he does with, with uh, Phil Visser from the VeggieTales fame. They do one of those together each week as well. And this book he wrote called With challenges readers to contemplate the way that they relate with God and to examine the models that they have been taught, how the models that they have been shown in the churches they grew up in or the churches that they had encountered later in life. Now, Jim was so impacted by this book that he wanted every ABA church throughout the province to have a copy. So he called a publisher and he ordered a big case of them. And he had a case of these books shipped to him. And he was on his, on his way throughout the whole province making sure every church and each pastor had a copy of the book. And, and this is the one that, that he gave to me. And then throughout that year... Uh, churches throughout the province have been studying it together. Pastors and staffs have been studying it together. It's led to different sermon series to take place in some churches. It's led even to some year-long church campaigns. As churches in our conference have spent an entire year on this topic and on the lessons that are principles that we find in this book. All examining themselves and examining and reflecting about the nature of how they individually and corporately experience God. Now, it was on December 18th of last year that I was standing in line at Costco when I received notice that Jim had suddenly passed. And that was, that was a shock to everybody throughout the conference. But I always thought it was such an awesome thing that Jim's last mission to us before he went to be with God eternally was to call us to understand that first and foremost, God wants us to be with him here and now and eternally. And so I'm excited to share this subject matter with you. I'm excited to share this, this book with you. And I invite you to join us this fall as we'll spend a number of weeks walking through these principles. 
And during this process, I'm hoping that we will have an opportunity to reimagine the way that we relate to God. Some parts of this sermon series you're going to find insightful. There'll be moments where we're going to be considering why do people struggle in their faith? Why have people disengaged from the church? It'll be insightful. There'll be moments that are challenging as, as you're invited to contemplate the manner in which you have previously experienced God and, and, and how that's working out for you. But there will also be parts where it's affirming. Because we are also going to remind it of God's sovereignty and his love for every single one of us. And in the end, it's my prayer that we will all come to live our lives in deeper communion with God. Now and forevermore. So as we jump into this topic, let me begin by asking you a question. How have you experienced God? How have you experienced God? As I ask that question, some of you may be thinking, oh, I'm not really too sure. It may be, maybe I haven't actually experienced God. Maybe uh, I haven't met him yet. I'm not sure he even exists. I'm on a journey. That's why I'm here. Others may be thinking, well, and I never really thought about the question before. One thing I do know is true, though. One thing that I do believe is true for all of us is that all of us are on a unique spiritual journey. And it's made up of different struggles, of different people, of different life events that all reveal a variety of ways that we have opportunity to encounter how God is reaching out to us. Some of us may have grown up in Christian homes or we grew up in the church and that's what God had used to, to reach out to us. Others may have had friends who, who shared the love of God with us. And, and through their ministry, we came to know him. Others, perhaps in your story, you, you reached this point of near-death experience or you entered into a rock-bottom time, as they sometimes refer to them as. Others may say, you know what, it's just sort of this long, gradual process of, of encountering people and of studying and of learning and of challenging and debating. And over time, this long, gradual process, I just kind of came closer to belief until I finally I accepted and, and knew the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard multiple testimonies in my life about how God was drawing people towards himself. And, and one thing that I've always thought is just awesome is that what worked for one person doesn't work for the person sitting beside you. What works in your story will be different than the person sitting beside you. I've, I've heard some testimonies where I just, I relate to the story so much. And I, as I listen to how it unfolded, I, I can feel a sort of emotional connection to what happened in that person's life. There's other times I hear testimonies I'm just like, huh, that's what did it for you, hey? That's what pushed you over the line. And, and I just can't relate to it at all. But, but see, that's the point. The point is that God knows you, and God knows what will get your attention, and that's what makes up your unique story that brought you to a point where you're sitting here or brought you to a point where you have that moment of decision to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what does that make a difference in my life? And while each of us have these unique stories, they do all point to a common goal. The common goal they all point towards is that relationship with God. And it's a relationship that changes you from the inside out as you get a, a, a new heart and new passions and new values, a new worldview and a new destiny in eternity with him. And it's also a relationship that's often lived out within the context of community with other fellow believers other fellow people who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, and that's what we find in the context of the church. 
And this often becomes, the church often becomes the primary training place, the primary place that people are discipled and are taught and learn what it looks like and what it means to follow God. And in most Christian traditions, that can be reduced down to obey God and be devoted to his work in the world, and that is the recipe for joy and for peace and for contentment and fulfillment and for purpose in life. But I have another hard question for you. Is that what you actually experience? Is that the outcome of your journey that you actually experience? When the promise is joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment and purpose in life, is that actually what we experience? Or is it just what we believe in and hope for? Because here's what I've discovered. Through my professional life, through my personal life, through research that has been done into this subject matter, is that there are two groups of people. There's a group of people who experience that joy, who experience that fulfillment because it is true and it does exist. There's a group of people who do experience that. But then there's a larger group of people who envy those people. And this larger group and their experience of God and their experience of church falls short of that promise. Scott DeShaney encountered this himself when he was mentoring a group of of very intelligent Christian college students. And as he got to know them and their experiences, that actually became the catalyst that caused him to dive deeper and to write the book with as he examines how people experience God. All of these students that he was working with came from Christian homes. They grew up with church involvement. They knew their Bible. They had the ability to enter into theological discussions. And so he thought it was safe ground to ask them questions about how do you relate to God? Like, like how have you experienced God in their lives? The same question I asked you a moment ago. And he was met with confusion. You see, most of these students, when he asked them about prayer, well, how how do you talk to God? When When you pray to God, what does that look like? Most of them had not been taught to pray. Most of them had limited experiences beyond sort of this rote prayer that you would say over dinner. When you ask them about their times of joy, like tell me about a time that you just felt like God was so close to you, that, 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 that sort of personal, meaningful times with God. And this idea of, of a presence of God in their lives was a foreign concept to them. And, and for most of these young adults, the quality of their faith, the quality of their faith was essentially gauged in how well they could control their lustful desires. It was what they had boiled it down to. Most people spoke about God the way that an office worker would speak about a CEO who has a picture on the off, of him on the office wall. They know he exists, but they've never actually met him. And they don't have a personal relationship with him at all. And so he found through this research that these students could be put into four groups, four common postures about how people define their religious experiences and the motivations behind that. He said there are these groups, there are many people who came in this group where they they came to believe that the only way you can have significance in life, the only way that you can show gratitude back to God for what he did is if you you dedicate part or all of your life to to missions and, and to being a pastor. And these students felt that they had to serve God in the world and live their lives for God. Others were more of the intellectual nature and they could dive into these intellectual insights. And they worked really hard to determine what God approved. And once they had made a list of all of what he approved of and what to do and what not to do, they believed that it was their duty to defend 
and then to abide by those boundaries that they had encountered and lived their lives under God. He came across a few who were convinced that they needed God in their lives if they were ever going to have hope of, of security, if they were ever going to have a meaningful career, if they're going to get the ring by spring. And in this situation, they saw that, that God was a means to an end, that God in their life was, was for personal advantage as they pursued life from God. And then finally, he encountered a group who had, had a negative experience, negative experience in church culture, and were at a point of just being ready to walk away from their faith. They, they, they tried it and were ready to leave it, and they were going to live life over God. And these were the ones who had waited all their lives for a compelling vision of Christianity. But the experience that they had failed to live up to the promise. And they were disillusioned. And they concluded that Christianity had failed. When in reality, they had merely experienced a form of faith that had no real power. Now I want to mention to you here that there's nothing wrong with obeying God. There's nothing wrong with serving God. There's nothing wrong with being blessed by God. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that these postures in and of themselves are incomplete. Because rather than obeying, serving, and blessings being the outcomes of our relationship with God, these postures become the means of our relationship with God. You see, and they drive us to do for God before we even know what it means to be with God. There's an important distinction between those two things. Because if God loves us, and if God knows you so personally as to uniquely call you into a relationship with him, then I am convinced that he must have more in mind for us than this lackluster experience that these students and so many others have encountered. There must be a better way. There must be a more full experience of God that's available to us. And the good news is this, is that there is. There is a more full experience than most people in this situation have encountered. And it's rooted in the very core of God's nature. In his very nature as the pre-existent triune God. Now this is one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Is that there is one living and true God. That he is perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in sovereignty and holiness and justice and mercy. And he is perfect in love. Who before the creation of time and space existed in three co-equal persons. Being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each having a specific role in creation and in, historic, in, in, in history of redemption. The Father who sends the Son Jesus and the Father who adopts us as sons and daughters. The Son, Jesus, who came to reveal the kingdom of God and forgives us through his sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit who dwells among us and connects us to the Father and the Son. Now admittedly, the, the, the concept, this doctrine of the Trinity is complex. And, and more than we can possibly get into in its fullness today. But this is where life with God finds its origin. Of all the passages we can find in the New Testament in particular that support Trinitarian theology, there's one I want to draw your attention to right now that we find in the opening words of the book of John. Where John opens his book by saying this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John's Gospel, 
That word gospel means the good news. In this case, the good news about Jesus Christ, which is what John is focusing upon in his book. About, about the story of Jesus, the good news about Jesus Christ. And as he focuses upon that person of the Trinity, he opens his book by referring to Jesus here as the Word. But here he also reveals the pre, his pre-existence as God. But not just as God, existing in the Godhead as a relational and personal nature. You see, because God in this Trinitarian understanding, God exists in perfect harmony and in perfect community within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community within themselves. They're preeminent with. Imagine for a second that you lived in a neighborhood where everything you needed was provided. There, there, you had a home, you had schools, you had work, you had shopping, recreation, friends, church. Anything you could possibly want existed within that neighborhood. It was free of crime. It, it's free of conflict. It, it's free of political interference. There's no need to go beyond that neighborhood because it is a utopian community of perfect unity and harmony. That is a sense of the community that exists between these three persons in the Godhead. And therefore, God does not act out of need. God does not go beyond himself looking for community out of need. But he does so out of desire. And this further reveals the, the relational nature that we find within God and that he displayed in creation. We see this in Genesis 1, chapter, 20, verse, chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. It's this invitation to start going beyond the perfect community within himself to reach out and extend a hand. And if you were to continue reading through chapter 2, you see that God created a garden for Adam and Eve to live in. And in that garden, they lived and they tended. That garden was a place where creator and created walked together in communion. This was God's original intent for humanity, to live and to rule with him. However, as we know, if we keep reading, we get to Genesis chapter 3. And as we get to Genesis chapter 3, we see this appearance of our capacity to be tempted and to be enticed away. That rather than to live and rule with God, man and woman in that chapter sought to live apart from him. You see, as we read the whole story, God told them that they're free to, to go around the garden, to, to tend the garden, and to eat from any tree in the garden except for one. That tree that was referred to as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for whenever they ate of that tree, they would die. That's symbolic of asking the question, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust yourself or are you going to trust God? The created or the creator? But there is a tendency to be tempted and enticed and drawn away. And the serpent, the devil, knew this and came to the woman and came to the man and said to them, you won't die. Surely you won't die. For God knows that if you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The fruit was pleasing. It was tempting. It was mouth-watering. It looked ripe and juicy, ready to be picked and consumed. But I don't think they ate out of hunger in their stomachs. 
It's not the suggestion we find in this passage. It wasn't hunger in their stomachs that drew them away. It was this hunger to be like God. Because being with God was no longer enough. When they had an opportunity, when they were tempted, when they were lied to and told, no, you could be God. You can gain control over things. The Bible calls this attitude. The Bible calls this pursuit sin. And it's our instinct to live apart from God. It's our instinct, the sinful instinct to self-rule in our lives. And today that we live in this post-garden, life-after-Eden world, where the prevalence of sin is everywhere. Strife and struggle, fear and guilt is the universal human experience that all of humanity seeks to overcome. And there are four postures by which we tend to try to overcome it. There are four postures by which we try to mitigate our fears, where we try to exert control so that we can somehow make the world more right than we're currently experiencing. We see this in the religions of the world. That's essentially where the religions of the world emerge from, is this attempt to mitigate fear and gain a sense of control. They all offer a path up the mountain where we can resolve the tension between us and the world and a path up the mountain where we can resolve the tension between us and God. And you'll find beliefs and teachings in, in the religions of the world along the lines of, if I go and do some good, if, if, I, if I pick up some garbage, if I help that little lady across the street, if I donate some money, if I go do good, then I will be good. If I believe the right teachings, if I complete the right rituals, then God will be pleased with me. I can get his attention and he'll be pleased with me. If I sacrifice some of my desires, then God must be obligated to fulfill the rest of my desires. Or if my life doesn't go the way I want, if my prayers aren't answered the way I want, then I guess God just doesn't exist. These four postures as we try to gain an understanding, control, and mitigate our fears of the world around us. We even see these within Christianity as attempts to earn God's favor as attempts to, to earn his approval. But the problem, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead as we continue processing this, is that all of these other postures fail to deliver on the promise. They fail to deliver on the promise, and the Bible exposes the lie that self-rule and human religious systems and constructs will work. Because there is no path up the mountain that earns God's attention. There is no path up the mountain that will make us right with God. Instead, God came down the mountain. God came down and entered into our life after Eden. Which is what John writes about in chapter 3, verse 16, when he beautifully says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. God came down into life after Eden so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would instead have eternal life. You see, this is God's continued invitation to invite us into eternal community with him. It's his continued invitation to us. And it's not gained by what we do or by who we are. It's gained by who he is and what he did. Our role is to turn from sin. Our role is to turn from self-determined rule. Our role is to turn and, and trust in something beyond ourselves. Instead, to have a willingness to surrender control and to place our trust and our faith in him instead of in ourselves. And this is where life with God begins. By accepting that invitation into eternal community by giving up these other postures that we think will earn his attention and satisfy our needs. 
Now remember, there's nothing wrong with obeying. There's nothing wrong with serving and being blessed by God. But these are not the means of our relationship. They are the outcomes of our relationship. We cannot be simply driven to do for God in an effort to earn his approval and his attention. It is more about being with God and knowing what he already has accomplished that draws us into that relationship. This was God's intent for humanity from the very beginning. And we also see that in the future, it's the reality that he will one day again restore. And here's the end of the story. Remember we saw earlier in the book of John how John begins the story of his good news of Jesus Christ by talking about how God, the preexistent God, existed in perfect community with himself. And then John wrote another book called Revelation where he tells us the end of the story. And this is what we find in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be, he will be their God. You see, the day is going to come when God will set all things right when we will walk with him in that new Jerusalem. This is life after Eden that we currently know full of strife and fear and guilt. It will be no more. God will be with those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they will be with him eternally. God and humanity will dwell in perfect eternal communion with each other. But we don't have to wait for that. It's not just a future promise. You see, it's something that we can experience now because Jesus stepped in to time. And we begin to live in eternity even now. You see, the beginning and the end of the story is God with people. The question before us is how will we live in the middle? God's original intent and God's future design is with. Which posture do we adopt in the middle? Because whoever honestly believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that they have sinned, that, that they've trusted in themselves, that they've they said, you know what, I, I need to control, I need to do, I need to accomplish. Whoever acknowledges that that is an attitude of sin and that it doesn't work. As God stated in the garden, that whoever eats of that tree of, of self-rule, of trusting in the self, will die. Now, we're not talking about physical death here. We're, we're talking about this, this separation from God that leads to an eternal destiny. The separation from God is the death he's speaking of here. But out of love, God sent his son who was worthy to pay the price and died in our place for us. And so if we open up our lives to him, if we receive his forgiveness, the scripture tells us that we enter into relationship with God in that moment. Not because of who we are, what we've accomplished, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is and what he has accomplished. If that's not a, a reality that currently exists within your life, there'll be people at the front here who would love to meet you and pray with you and examine more what it could look like to have that relationship with God beginning in your life this fall. But that's just the beginning. Because then as we continue to grow and learn the, the implications of being in relationship with God, of being in community with God, 
Then we continue to see what does it look like to, to serve and obey and, and be blessed by him. But those things never take that foundational place of being with him. They flow out of our relationship with him. If you're interested in reading more about this as we go throughout this series, we have a number of these books available for you at the kiosk following the service that you can pick up. If you want to learn more of what it looks like to, to walk with God in, in your Christian walk, we're, we're creating some small group material and we're launching some new sermon-based small groups. And, and each week on the website, we'll be, launch, we'll be posting the audio and the video of the sermon as well as some small group material that you can go through as a family or as a group of people who are questioning this together. But before I close and lead to prayer, I want to offer you this one thought. That God has uniquely and lovingly sought after you. He's uniquely and lovingly sought after you. He's extended an invitation for you to enter into perfect communion with him. Not based upon your achievements, your goodness, or your religious devotion. Based upon his love for you. Based upon the step that he took in Jesus Christ to draw you unto himself. Now this may seem too easy. It may seem like, oh, I'm not worthy of that sacrifice. You may feel like you're plagued by this need to earn that gift. You may feel like you're plagued by the need to maintain that gift. That's why the postures of over, under, for, and from are so appealing. Because if we're practicing over, over, over under, for, or from, we're trying to gain back some control over our destiny. It's us saying, I need to do. It's not enough to just be. But I can tell you this, the fullest experience, the most rewarding experience, the experience that people who sat in that small group with Sky Jatani, the experience that they never had, is found when we learn to first and foremost be with God and allow our devotion and our service and our love for him to flow from that. Everything else will fall short. I ask if you'd bow your heads with me to this closing word of prayer. You may be here today, and perhaps you've never taken that step of, of trust. You, you've been more committed to self-rule than allowing God to have that place in your life. And if that's the case, and I just want to give you an opportunity right now as your heads are bowed to, to say in your own heart that, yes, Lord, I've tried it my way. And, and I feel confident within myself until I look at the outcomes and, and I realize that, that my way's not your way, that my way's not sufficient. If you have that emptiness, that, that, that sense that there's something beyond yourself that you need, it is Jesus. And just this moment right now, I want to give you opportunity to acknowledge that in your heart. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. I also want to ask you to consider... That as you look at your own path, the way that you relate to God, the way that you've experienced God, it, it may be very true and very genuine, but has it lived up to the promise? And if you can't confidently say, yes, it has lived up to the promise, I ask you to go to the next dangerous question, which is how have I related? What posture have I tried? It has been based upon being under God, over God, from God, or for God. But do I instead need to just recommit myself to be with God in that community? To allow him to rule and reign in my life and allow my service and my devotion to flow from that. As we contemplate those things, I just want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, 
we know that the most important decision a person can ever make in their life is to accept you, to place their trust and their faith in you. And so, God, for those who may be here who have never taken that step, but they can hear the spirit that is within them that dwells among us and connects us to the Father and the Son as that spirit is speaking to them, I pray, God, that they would say yes. Yes, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for paying the price for my sins that I was not able to pay. Thank you for making a way that I could enter into relationship with the Father. That I may know that joy, that peace, that I may know what it means to be in a relationship with the Father that I can overcome the world. God, I pray that those people who have not taken that step would do so, Lord, and, and, and come meet with us at the front following the service here so we can continue to journey with them. For the rest of us, Lord, there are, there are those here who we, we've wrestled with our, the nature of our relationship with you. And I just pray, God, that whatever we've defined it by in the past, that we would have opportunity today and in the days ahead to examine this difficult concept but so important Lord, are we first and foremost with you? Or are we burdened by this need to serve and obey and, and convince that you are just going to bless us and that's the only place life can come from? God, we know that you, you love to journey with us, that you love to bless your people, that you, you delight in their service and that you delight in their obedience. But I know, Lord, that you call us first and foremost to be with you. And so may we just refocus ourselves upon that. And help us to examine that in the days ahead. What does that practically look like and mean in my life and in all of ours? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.